At the time of this recording, the world is in the midst of a viral pandemic. Many people are afraid. Many people are in isolation, voluntary or otherwise. Some are sick or will become sick. And indeed, some are dying. In this special series of the Guru Viking podcast, I ask my guests how to work with fear, anxiety and panic. How to work with isolation. How to work with sickness and death and how to help others who are also having those experiences. Neither I nor my guests are medical professionals, and this podcast is not medical advice. Fear, sickness, and death are perennial human experiences, and it's my hope that these episodes will be of use not only to those who are being affected now by this situation, but also of use to others beyond it. First of all, thank you very much, Shenzhen, for agreeing to do this podcast. My pleasure. Um, I um, need to explain my five o'clock shadow. I, I can't take a, a shower for a few days because of this, so apologize for being somewhat disheveled. I think you look suitably grizzled for the apocalypse. Grizzled. That's a good one. Yeah. I, I'm grizzled uh, on the outside, but soft on the inside. I had this surgery done on my ear, so I can't, I can't shave or take a shower or anything. So it's not a fashion statement. <laughs> In these interviews, it's, it's a special series within my podcast I've been doing, a pandemic series addressing certain questions that are pressing on people at this time. But I know that our time is short, and actually you've spoken to many of those themes elsewhere. So I've picked out three or four videos that address those particular topics. And I'd like to sort of go one step beyond that, if you wouldn't mind. Could you narrate your own response as if we were, say, a fly in the wall in your mind to this emerging pandemic? I mean, not necessarily in terms of the your assessment of the risk, logistically speaking, of the steps you might take coming from that assessment, but from, say, a practice point of view. How does a series of events like this impact your experience? Well, I talk to people about what I call accelerators, things that speed up one's practice. And I think most people listening to this show will understand that by practice, we're referring to things uh, <clears throat> like mindfulness, meditation. We use practice as a short for contemplative practice, are there things I can do to accelerate my practice? Um, and I actually give them a list. I have a sort of four recommended things that you can do um, to speed up uh, your practice. And by speed up your practice, we mean um, speed up the rate at which you are suffering less fulfilled more, understanding yourself at deeper and deeper levels, making positive behavior changes, and ultimately the degree to which one is called to service, those sort of five fundamental dimensions, types of human happiness, um, speed up, accelerate um, your growth in all five dimensions of happiness, um, as it relates to your practice. That's what we mean by accelerate. 
So people will say, what can I do to accelerate? I have a standard list. And one of them is actually not, is an attitude thing. That's my phrase. This is an attitude thing. So the attitude thing is, what kind of attitude do we take towards situations in the objective world? Um, there are big situations, there are little situations. Situations can be desirable, undesirable, a mixture of both or not particularly either. Situations can occur inside oneself, inside one's family, community, nation, the whole world. Um, so there's situations. Some of them we seek, some of them happen to us. So what characterizes what I would call a person with a mature practice is their knee-jerk immediate response to some big situation. So you're asking me as someone that has done quite a bit of practice, um, what was my immediate knee-jerk response to the situation? Well, that of course is a function of two things, how inconvenient it is for me and how I relate to that inconvenience. So here's where I need to be honest, it's actually not terribly inconvenient for me because, um, I mean, we've had to shut down the physical operation of our lab here at the University of Arizona, uh, that's inconvenient, but we can still, uh, I and my research partners can talk to each other, you know, by phone and internet, and there's plenty of, of stuff to do. And I can run my retreats uh, through online and so forth. And um, I'm in a, a period now where I'm going through a lot of scientific creativity and also I need to write a manual in Chinese that is uh, presents my system. Um, so actually I've got a lot of work to do on my own. So to be honest, doesn't personally inconvenience me all that much. But obviously it's impacting the whole world and people are inconvenienced in a lot of different ways and who knows where it's going to lead. So there's all those emotions in the body and confusion in the mind because of the situation in the world that you mentioned. So uh, being honest that in some ways, actually I'm rather not impacted. Also fortunately, even though I'm almost 76, I'm apparently in very good health. So less of a thing for me than probably most people actually, considerably less. Still, it's a thing, right? I, it's like really, really inconvenient um, in terms of living and, and what have you. And there is, of course, my secondary consternation because of the people around me and in the world that are going through so much consternation. So yeah, it hits. So what was the very first thing was the mark of a, uh, a mature meditator. It's, oh, situation practice. This is a 
non-consensual retreat for me. Most retreats are consensual. Hey, I, you know, allocate some time, I go off to a center, what have you. It's what I wanted to do. Maybe a challenge, but, you know, uh, we do it and we're happy for it. So that's a consensual retreat under idealized situations. If you have a practice, I would hope the first thing before anything that you would remember is the big picture. Sooner or later, something's going to get us all. <laughs> That's the big picture. Sooner or later, something is going to get us. And whatever that thing is, uh, injury, old age, sickness, death, it's going to get us. Big picture-wise, when that happens, when it's, you're facing the disorder of the decline and end of life, you look back and what was that for you? What was life for you? As you are being pulled out of life, maybe slowly, maybe painfully, maybe quickly, maybe in your sleep, who knows. But what's that like for you? Um, that's the big picture of a human being's life. There's something every human being can do to optimize the meaning of the big picture of their life, and it's this practice in its various forms. Uh, it's the same really for me all over the world. It involves concentration, clarity, and equanimity cultivated in the service of all dimensions of human happiness, including relief from suffering due to mental, emotional, physical, or situational forces. So first thing that I would hope would come to a practitioner, what came to me is, oh, non-consensual retreat under adverse circumstances. I understand what a retreat is. I understand how to work with adverse circumstances. I know what my job is here for myself and what my job is for the people around me and broadly people that I might influence. And that's it. One of the phrases that you use is that if you don't go to the monastery, uh, someday the monastery will come to you. Uh, this yeah. strikes me as something of that sort of a situation. Uh, you also talk of windows and walls in practice, windows being opportunities yes. and walls being obstacles, let's say, that one comes, up, comes upon in practice. And I think uh, we can certainly look around and interpret much of the situation that we're facing in terms of walls or obstacles. What do you imagine are, say, three windows that are available to a meditator when they find themselves in a situation like this? Yeah, so, that, so this would be, let's look at the good side of it. Um, from a practice perspective, what's good about COVID-19? Um, so, well, what characterizes a retreat is that you're, 
you simplify uh, your life. So people are now forced to have a simplified life situation. Um, and they can either fill that simplicity with diversions or they can actually utilize that simplicity for their practice because they have more time to meditate or you're in circumstances that make it easier, uh, you know, the simple circumstances of life. Um, now we do practice. So in that sense, it's like a retreat. This, the paring down of life that the world is going through now for a while to deal with this, um, you could look upon it as a simplificatio or simplification of our life, even a, sanct, uh, a uh, sancta simplificatio, uh, a, a sacred simplification of life. If you decide to make it sacred, um, that's a decision anyone can make. So um, it's a simplification that makes it like a retreat. Second thing that comes to my mind is that um, it's a motivation because it's a reminder that stability and safety are only um, relative in this life. And life's just a phone call away. Life's just a <laughs> pandemic away. Um, so to me, it fortifies my intention to have happiness independent of conditions. We, so when you go to a retreat, people think of it as deprived, deprived conditions, but actually it's just simplified conditions, unless it's one of those really tough retreats. But usually in the Western world, retreats are not brutal like they can be in Asia. They're usually pretty mellow. So it's a simplified environment. So it's not a deprived environment. So you can look upon this, the simplicity that we're having to face now as a, an aspect of imposed retreat, but it's also motivating us to remember, hey, it's really important because, yeah, this is bad, but as far as bad goes, this is still not on the bad side of bad. We, we know what the bad side of bad is. And this is not the bad. The bad side of bad is everything falls apart um, for a while. So this is bad, but, it's, but it can remind us uh, of the big picture and how important it is that our happiness not be dependent on conditions. So that could, that motivation factor, besides it's an imposed retreat and it's a motivation to do the practice. And then I would say, if you've, if you're successful with that, then you're not going to personally suffer um, too much under these circumstances. I'm not envisaging planning that I'm going to go through any significant horrible travail. It's inconvenience. That's what it is in my world anyway, my personal world. Um, but I know a lot of people are really freaked out. 
So for those of us that may be a little less freaked out, not we're my phrase, you may have heard me say it, another thing from the UK, it's the uh, it's a inverse James Bond cocktail. <clears throat> we want to be stirred, not shaken as human beings. <laughs> That's an inverse James Bond cocktail. He wanted shaken, not stirred, which I think just means a watery cocktail. But anyway, <laughs> doesn't sound very appealing. But <laughs> anyway, uh, the... Um, uh, we need to be stirred, of course, but practitioners will be, should be significantly less shaken than the general public. And therefore, we have this calling to, and it is a window, really, uh, because ultimately, what is this path about, if not a calling to uh, be of service to others? And so, people in my profession. Of course, the good thing is so much is online now. So, so many people like me have, have their programs distance-based. <clears throat> so, hey, uh, utilize this deep source of um, wisdom and comfort from senior practitioners, or actually all practitioners, the whole community, uh, because uh, we will be reaching out uh, through the ways that we can reach people now. Uh, so I'm not stopping doing retreats. We just go to an online situation, uh, and then when we can do uh, on-the-ground retreats again, we'll start up. So I would th that's three, three things that came to my mind. Sometimes one knows what to do, but one can benefit from a message of reorientation. Three situations that I'd be very curious to say, what would your reorientation statement be? Practitioner comes to you and they're afraid, anxious, they're panicked, they're gripped by that, in fact. And they come to you and say, I've forgotten what to do, what do I do? Point me back in the right direction to my own practice. Situation number two. Someone has contracted a sickness, or they are indeed in the throes of a sickness. Situation number three. person comes to you and says, I think I'm dying, or actually, no, I am dying. What would you say to orient a person in those three situations? Yeah, the dying is a, is a little different from the other two. And this is under the hypothesis that the person has a, quote, practice. They already have a contemplative practice. So that obviously simplifies things. <clears throat> uh, as I say, the dying situation is, that's a special situation. We'll address that last. The first two I would address exactly the same way. Um, not with a suggestion, but a question. Um, so they have, they're anxious, basically you said panic, anxious, and, um, I thought fear something, which are basically synonyms, right? So they're freaking out in the fear family. Um, and the other is they're sick, which is an objective situation that causes both mental, emotional, and, uh, physical reactions. Uh, or experiences. 
Um, under both of those circumstances, I wouldn't make a recommendation. I would ask a question. It would be the same question because we're assuming that they're a practitioner. And the question would be, what have you tried so far and what, what, to what extent has it worked or not worked when you tried it, what happened? So my philosophy is probe, probe, probe. It's the same mantra as would be used. Uh, I don't know if it's the UK, in the UK it's the same, but here they say uh, location, location, location for the real estate industry. So in my style of mindfulness coaching, it's probe, probe, probe. We ask a lot of questions and we never assume. And then based on what you say, then we may have some interpretation or suggestions. So I find out what they've tried so far. That's, and of course, that may not be the answer you wanted because then it's gonna be case by case. But in general, I'll find out what was working and not working um, and then make some suggestions uh, based on that. Um, I mean, yeah, so I would say that's, that's what I would do. Uh, you're sick, okay, um, what have you been doing technique-wise and attitude-wise towards the sickness? Um, what's, and what has been the effect thereof? You are experiencing fear, that involves image, talk, body, emotion, mental image, mental talk, body, emotion. Um, how have you been working with it? Then interactively guide them from that point. But the basic thing for fear is it's an emotion. Therefore, <clears throat> it involves one or a combination of exactly three things, mental image, mental talk, and body sensation. If you can untangle and unblock the flow of the fear, then you'll escape into the fear. It will become so full that you, you've, that it doesn't coagulate into a thing anymore. It's just a, a, a verb, a doing that passes through you. <clears throat> it stirs you, but it doesn't shake you. That's a description of having a complete experience of the fear. And it, that's one way to deal with a sensory challenge. The other basic strategy is turn away from the fear, anchor onto something external or positive or restful or fluid and go away from the fear. You still develop the same attentional skills, concentration, clarity, equanimity, either way. So if you, elect a turn towards strategy, then you untangle and unblock the sensory experience of the challenge. If you elect to a turn away strategy, you focus on something else, but you background equanimize, you let the challenge be there in the background and that actually, uh, the non-blocking uh, releases it. In the case of the person who is dying, I <clears throat> need to distinguish um, are they resigned to the fact that they're dying or are they still in a situation where they need to be putting a lot of effort into recovering or fighting? Those are different situations. Um, if they're not 
definitely moribund, um, then I give them one kind of guidance that involves, um, well, one kind of guidance. If they've already, they know, hey, this is it, it's a simpler guidance. Um, and if uh, this is on the internet, I've actually got a, a video series, how to guide someone through the dying process. But basically, under the situation where they know they're dying, so they're in hospice and they're in palliative care and this is it, then it's, um, once again, attitude. Can they see the dying process as a premier window of opportunity to become liberated? Um, maybe so, maybe not. If they can, then we definitely emphasize that. If they can't, then we work for something simpler, which is um, sort of palliative relief. And usually that entails uh, people when they die often become very feeble, which um, is actually a natural segue into deep restful states. So I'll typically um, guide, I'll try uh, the technique that I call focus on rest is usually the first one I try with someone um, uh, as something simple um, that is relevant to uh, what they're going through. Thank you. And I will link to that, um, how to guide people through dying. That's an hour long talk. That's one of the resources that I will link there. Um, so if there's anything that Shinzen's saying that you're curious for more details are, the chances are it'll be linked in the resources uh, below. There'll be a specific video. Okay, well, thank you for being so generous with your time. As you've pointed out, situations like the prospect of suffering in relationship to some global pandemic or, or whatever else, uh, the catastrophe or crisis may be, whether it's it's personal or, or more broad. One of the things that, as you've said, people become a, more acutely aware of themes such as change and death. And I know you love Eliot, T.S. Eliot. Oh, yes. Yeah, there are two quotes of his that I wanted to uh, pass to you and see if you, if you could ex expound spontaneously on these lines as they strike you. That's so cool. I love it. Okay, good. So, okay, here we are, Eliot's two lines here. It is worthwhile dying to find out what life is. And the second, it takes so many years to learn that one is dead. Yes. So these are quotes I haven't um, uh, heard before, actually. I'm not a Eliot scholar by any means, um, but I, I think he's the greatest poet in the, probably in any language. So um, the one sort of deals with the aspect of this path um, called um, uh, getting enlightenment. And the other deals with the aspect of this path called realizing you've always been enlightened and so is everyone else. Now it turns out those are the same thing. Um, it's very, very confusing because a lot of teachers will emphasize one side or the other. 
Um, but they're just two sides of the same phenomenon. So um, there's physical death, um, which I'm going to say we're going to fight against <laughs> strongly. Um, but then there's um, an experience where the somethingness of self and world can go away. The doingness of personality and relationship remains, but the somethingness of self and world becomes less and less. And um, that leads to a potential for happiness independent of conditions. Um, the other, and so that could metaphorically be called dying, even though it's not actually physically dying. It's a sort of dying of the noun called X, whatever that noun might be, Shinzen or Steve. That noun dies, but then that reveals the verb that's always been there. Um, and that changes one's relationship to physical death significantly. Um, here's another quote, Hakuin. I don't know if you ever heard H-A-K-U-I-N. He created the modern Japanese koan system. By modern, we mean 17th century, uh, you know, 18th century. But um, uh, in any event, um, uh, uh, he said, um, um, young people of the world, if you don't like the idea you're going to die, then I strongly encourage you to do it now and get it over with. Um, do it now and get it over with. Well, it doesn't mean like, you know, uh, physically. It's this other thing. Now, um, it's a price in a sense. It's the price of a kind of um, primordial humility. You just realize you've always been very, very small. Uh, but the flip side of that is a connection to the very, very large. And that's the second aspect of it that he was talking about, to realize you're already dead. Uh, in other words, you're already enlightened. Um, takes many years to... Well, so say the quotes again. That I think it will resonate. It's worthwhile dying to find out what life is. And the second quote, it takes so many years to learn that one is dead. Yeah, that's right. 
So when you learn that you are dead, you find out what life is. And it's definitely worth dying in the sense of releasing the somethingness of self that never was there anyway, um, because then in a very real sense, you can sidestep physical death. I mean, obviously not in the bullshit sense of sidestepping, but in the sense of what death means for you. That's why it's, uh, it's worth it. You'll know what life was. When the end comes, you look back and it's like, oh yeah, I know what life was. I did it. It's complete. Um, and physical death is much less of an issue from that perspective. Not saying it's not an issue, but it's definitely a different perspective. And of course, each person is free to make their statement what life really is. But usually they'll say pretty standard things. The words are standard, but the depth of the experience behind them is completely, completely not standard. <laughs> so the words would be, well, life is love, or life is actually the dance of life and death. Those would probably be my words for what life really is. <laughs> Shinzen Young, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. For more information and more episodes in this series, visit www.guruviking.com.